Previously on Unbillable Boston. The death penalty itself is inconsistent with the administration of justice. Mm. And just because the injustices may fall on some people, but not other people, or may fall on some people harder than other people, does not mean that you should continue to apply the death penalty. It is a fundamentally flawed system. And that was Boston Bar Association President Julia Houston last week on the podcast on unbillableboston.com. Hello, everyone. Thanks again for joining us. This is David Yaz from Morgan Stanley, and we thank you for tuning in to Unbillable Boston. Julia was talking about the death penalty in the case of the Boston Marathon bomber in last week's edition of the podcast where we took a look back at the marathon bombing and the inspirational stories that came out of that. If you haven't listened to that edition of the podcast, I really encourage you to go back and check it out. All of our past episodes are at unbillableboston.com or, by the way, if that slips your mind, just go to thebostonpodcast.com because we are the Boston Podcast. This week on Unbillable Boston, a little bit more leftover marathon chat on this Patriots Day and this week of Patriots Day as we talk to um, two lawyers, actually, in this episode. You'll hear from Julia Houston again. A little bit more of a wide-ranging chat with Julia, her role as president of the Boston Bar Association, what that is all about, what her main causes are as the president, as the top lawyer in Boston at the BBA. And then we also talked to Jeremy Silverfine, who's a litigator, really great lawyer here in town, Boston. His practice happens to be at an office on the marathon route, so we hear a little bit about that looking back two years ago, but also just chat with Jeremy in general about his practice, what he's up to, former prosecutor, very, very interesting guy. So uh, once again, we thank you for listening. If you have a chance, subscribe to us on SoundCloud or on iTunes, whatever method you are listening to this. Hit that subscribe button, hit the like button, leave a comment, something like that. Give us a little mojo. It'll uh, increase uh, our audience. We appreciate that. And we thank you for listening to Unbillable Boston. My co-hosts, thank you as well. That's Max Perlman over at Hirsch Roberts and Sarah Worley, who is, uh, for my money, the best mediator, arbitrator in town at Worley Conflict, Conflict Resolution in Boston. And you know what? That's enough for me. Let's start the show. This one's for you, Boston. Boston's a different city than it was 20 years ago. The hope rises again, and the dream lives on. Larry Bird's not walking through that door, fans. The world will return to this great American city to run harder than ever and to cheer even louder. This is our city. It's our city. It's our town. It's our community. It's our people. It's our podcast. Welcome back to... On Billable Boston. This is David Yaz from Morgan Stanley with you as usual. And as usual with me is Sarah Worley of Worley Conflict Resolution. Is that the name of your uh, company, Sarah? Just yes, not say yes or something. Okay. She's walking behind me. There's already chaos in the uh, On Billable Boston studios here, but, um, but it's a nice chaos. And um, we have uh, uh, an excellent guest today, the president of the Boston Bar Association. And uh, I have known Julia Houston for a long time because we went to law school together, didn't we? I think we did, David. We did, and I, but I, although I don't think we were the same year. I graduated in uh, 93. Were you, you 92 maybe? 92. Okay, so we're only off by a year. And um, 
So Julia has had a terrific career before she took the helm of the BBA, and we're going to get into that a little bit. And but we want to hear as the the leader of the lawyers in Boston. With that becomes power, responsibility, and we want to hear everything you've accomplished and everything that you've uh, that you still intend to uh, to accomplish. But tell us, uh, well, tell us how it's been so far. Are you having fun? I am having fun. Mm -hmm. I've been president of the BBA since September 1 of last fall, and I have to say it's been a great experience so far. What do you like about it? It's a great team effort. You don't really swoop in as president and set your own agenda. You kind of build on the work that's come before. And I have been very lucky in that many of the projects that have been in progress before my presidency are now coming to fruition and I'm in the position of getting to execute on them. The most significant one in my personal view is increasing the level of civil legal aid to poor people in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. That's an issue that I have devoted substantial time to throughout my career and the BBA released a task force report on that very topic uh, very shortly after I took the presidency. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's <coughs> So civil legal aid, you know, uh, myself, I have a lot of experience with this, just being around it, having worked at Lawyers Weekly, and um, it can be um, uh, challenging. It, it always seems like there, there isn't enough funding for this, right? That's so right. give us an example of, um, you know, who's the, who's the person, who's the prototypical person who doesn't have representation that you can help? One example would be a person who is being wrongfully evicted from her home. Mm -hmm. This happens more often than you would think. Um, many times tenants pay rent but complain about the conditions of their dwellings and the landlords say, the heck with you, I don't need you, I'll just evict you. Even mm -hmm. if you've been living here 20 years, 30 years, etc. And that is a wrongful eviction. And when you have people who are eligible for civil legal aid, uh, that means that they are right on the brink of the poverty line or under the poverty line. And one change like that to their living conditions can just result in a spiral down into homelessness, loss of job, loss of children, etc. It is far more efficient for us as a society to help people stay in their homes when they have the legal right to stay in their homes than to let landlords put them on the street simply because the tenants don't have the legal representation to present their defenses. So uh, the only case I ever tried in my life was in housing court defending a poor woman who was getting evicted uh, by her landlord and her apartment was infested with maggots and leakage and all sorts of terrible stuff. and. Um, you know, that was my one Tom Cruise, a few good men moment. Full day trial, we won and kept her in. She didn't have any money, so it's, it's not like I, we could be so noble as to say we would pay if these conditions were <laughs> But it's pretty sad. So I take it there, there, are, there are just, uh, you know, scores and scores of people out there who ne maybe never even get to a lawyer. I, that was a legal aid case because I was doing it through the, uh, the BU civil legal aid program. Did you do that or no? Uh, I didn't do that particular program, yeah. but I know the programs that you're talking about, mm -hmm. and there are not enough lawyers to go around. Mm -hmm. uh, and at this point, the turnaway rate for civil legal aid is something like 
66 percent uh, or something like that it's in the range of 63 to 66 percent of people who are eligible for civil legal aid so they meet the income guidelines and they call the hotlines so they know who to call and they go through the screening process uh, but they are rejected not because their claims aren't meritorious but because there aren't enough lawyers to help them and on the housing issue in particular um, this has such dire economic consequences for the Commonwealth that it was one of the areas that the BBA task force report particularly studied uh, because the cost of housing and helping the homeless is so great uh, <coughs> that we hired some economists who worked on a pro bono basis to determine for every dollar of civil legal aid that you put into helping prevent wrongful evictions or foreclosures how much money does the state government save on housing the homeless having kids in foster care, increased policing costs as a result of more homeless people in your community. And they didn't assume that you would win every case. Not all cases are meritorious. They used very conservative assumptions and determined that for every dollar you put into civil legal aid in housing cases, it saves $2.69 mm -hmm. to the state. So our argument to the state government is that this is a wise investment. This is not a giveaway program. This is a smart thing to do. By putting money into prevention of homelessness, the state saves money in the end. So even in a time of budget restriction, uh, like we have now, the basic economic principles dictate putting your resources into these kind of preventative programs. So is this, do you think this in the end will be the thing that you're most proud of at the end of your, your year as president? I think or, it will be. So, uh, so what's number two? Uh, I mean, you're working on a bunch of stuff. Right? I mean, <laughs> I mean, are. I mean, I mean, when you're president, of, for those that don't know, when you're, when you're president, I've never been president of a bar association, <laughs> heaven forbid. But, if, but um, you don't, you still have your day job, right? So you, you're, you're still, you still keep. Have you kept your practice? You kept up with your practice? Yes, yeah, I'm so. still. Uh, so you're active. not sleeping, right? Uh, not as yeah. much as I used to. Right. So, but you get as president, you get to sort of determine a few of the big crusades of the year, right? That's right. So what, tell us, give us some other crusades. So civil legal aid is the major priority, uh, and we've already talked about that. We are opposing mandatory minimums mm -hmm. uh, in criminal sentencing. The BBA has opposed mandatory minimums for quite some time. That's an issue that is coming up again, and it is coming up as part of a larger initiative being spearheaded by Chief Judge Gantz and others. Um, that is really addressing the problem of, you know, why are we incarcerating s such a high proportion of our population? Mm -hmm. And why are we allowing this to happen when it has a disparate impact on communities of color? What can we do? In Massachusetts or in the United States? Both. Yeah. Both. We, we uh, this is, I'm, I'm not a genius for knowing this, we incarcerate more, a bigger percentage of our citizens than any country, is that right? I seem to remember. That's correct. Yeah. Jeremy Silverstein is nodding, so I, th I think it's correct. And we'll hear from Jeremy a little later. <laughs> anyway, um, so tell me, tell me why, tell me why you're passionate about that one. I'm passionate about criminal justice because I think for a long time people have assumed that the way it is is the way that it has to be, and we have not looked behind the assumptions that people have been making as to why people are going to jail and why they're ending up in the criminal system to begin with. Uh, starting last summer, I, I started reading a couple of books on these issues which were quite eye-opening. 
uh, including the new Jim Crow, uh, Colorblindness in the Age of Mass Incarceration by Michelle Alexander, and also Waking Up White by a local author named Debbie Irving. And it opened. Those have not come out uh, as movies yet, right? Because if so, I haven't. I probably have not. I'm not familiar. They're, they're casting I'm sorry. now. I'm, I just. I, <laughs> I'm not quite illiterate, but I think I'm on the brain. Anyways, well, I'm sorry. Please tell. Please tell us more. Well, I when I started taking an interest in these issues and looking at some of the literature that was out there and talking to people about it, I have to say that it really opened my eyes. Uh, and I think that there are reasons why, since the 1980s, we do have such a spike in incarceration and such a disproportionate impact on people of color. And I think it's time for us as a society to take a very hard look at that and determine what do we have to do to bring things back into an equilibrium. So um, we're talking about Julia Houston, who is the president of the Boston Bar Association, and we'll take a quick break here. And in moments, we will return to Unbillable Boston, and we'll take your phone calls. Just kidding. We don't do that on this show. We're a podcast. I mean, come on. We can't do everything. Stay with us on Unbillable Boston. music that you hear. I just mentioned to the gang here that that's a, a band called As a People out of San Francisco, and the lead singer is Adam Yaz, my brother. And uh, Adam doesn't know this, but I'm going to visit him this weekend for his 40th birthday party, and it's a surprise, so nobody tell him, okay? And uh, happily, this podcast won't be released for a little while, so he won't hear until afterwards. Anyway, he doesn't sing in that band anymore, but I thought I think they're pretty good. And um, I just hope he doesn't sue me for copyright violation. And if so, if not, I uh, if he does, I may call Julia Houston to defend me. So talking with Julia Houston, the president of the um, Boston Bar Association, tell us uh, just just real briefly about uh, your day job. Sure. So uh, I am a copyright lawyer in my day job. I, that's actually. why I brought it up. That's, that's right. called a segue. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I practice. Uh, Trademark, copyright, uh, false advertising, and unfair competition law at Foley HOAG, uh, where I chair the practice group uh, in those areas. How long have you been over at Foley? I went over to Foley about five and a half years ago. Okay. All right. Uh, so during the break, we were just kind of kicking around um, what we wanted to talk to Julie about it. And, you know, these are profound social issues that you're working on mandatory minimums, civil legal aid, and people that really need help. Uh, tell us, has it been something in your personal life that really inspired you to be a lawyer or to, or to ultimately get to this point where you can tackle these sort of big social issues? The way that I came to the law was not the usual path. I, I didn't know any lawyers growing up. We didn't have any in my family. And when I went to college, I was actually a psychology major. And then I declared a second major in teaching. <coughs> 
so that I could be certified to teach kids with developmental disabilities, uh, which is what I was interested in doing. And it wasn't until I was a teacher and getting my master's in educational policy that I had my first experience with lawyers. I did an internship as part of my master's program at Harvard. I did an internship at the Center for Law and Education, which is a LSC-funded um, you know, legal services organization serving people uh, of low income. And they were working on a class action on behalf of incarcerated juveniles who were being denied special education services uh, in lockups. And the states were finding that it was really cheap to take these kids who required expensive special ed and just throwing them into lockup and not giving them anything mm -hmm. uh, beyond just some standard curriculum. Uh, and so they needed somebody to come in and look at all these records that they had subpoenaed to determine how out of compliance these um, you know, organizations were in terms of when you have to have an evaluation, when you have to um, you know, have certain things connected to changes in placement. And so I prepared some, I looked at the records and of course it was abominable, and I prepared some nice graphs and charts and so forth, which ended up being the trial exhibits. So in some ways I was like an expert witness and in some ways I was like a paralegal. Mm. But that was my first exposure to lawyers. And mm. I have to say that I was incredibly impressed and inspired by the work that they did. And ultimately I felt that I could make a bigger difference in people's lives as a lawyer and by advocating for systemic change rather than by working with kids one-on-one. -on -one. So I went down the path of law school and uh, you know that's been my path ever since. Has, it, has you ever returned to special ed or anything in that, uh, or not, maybe not education, but working with people with disabilities or anything like that? It's okay you, if you haven't, I'm just curious. You know, I never did in a formal way. Mm -hmm. uh, when I graduated from law school in 1992, it was a very tight job market, and I was very much hoping to find a job that would pay me money as a lawyer, yeah. <laughs> and I was happy I to have one. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's nothing compared to today. The job market is much worse today, of course. But I was very happy to get a job at a large Boston law firm uh, doing general commercial litigation, and I always had in mind that I would end up doing some kind of education law or civil rights law. I never, but I liked doing commercial law, so I never made the transition, but I did start to volunteer for organizations like Greater Boston Legal Services and the Boston Bar Association mm -hmm. and participate in programs that provided those legal services, not as a lawyer in the trenches, but rather uh, in other capacities. And I served on the board of Greater Boston Legal Services for 10 years. I got very involved in the Equal Justice Coalition uh, and, I, and I chaired that group for three years. So I found ways as a lawyer to um, you know, express my interest and give back you know, to that part of the community, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, which is important to me and it does connect up to the reasons why I became a lawyer in the first place. So um, Sarah, you still with us? I am. Good. So you just mentioned something that you said, I don't want to say this, you should say it, but I'm making you, <laughs> I'm making you say it anyway because it's a good okay. point. But uh, about the history of the, the Boston Bar and when you, you sort of walk in there and, and about the role, of, uh, the role, the, the place female lawyers have played over the years. Yeah, well, uh, one of the interesting things um, in my experience is I belong to the labor and employment law s section of the Boston Bar Association. And our section is at this point chaired by two women. We have more women on the committee than men. Um, and it's ironic to sit in the conference room you know, once a month 
and look at the wall of presidents of the Boston Bar Association, you're hard pressed to find a woman on that wall. And I think you know, it's, it is tremendous that we have more women practicing, um, that we have women like Julia who have leadership positions in the bar. But um, you know, I'm curious just to know what your experience is, particularly now we have a new governor, um, to be working with the governor, with the legislature, and in a commonwealth that everyone can agree is kind of rough and tumble. The How governor is, is not a woman, I, I note for the record. As Thank far as you, I know. Yeah. David. No, but I'm just, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I'm not quibbling with you or with the you point. You better not quibble with No, me. but what you, I mean, the, 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 as, you know, Julia being president of the BBA, there have probably been less than 10 female presidents, or, or am I way off? Less than, uh, certainly less than 20, I would guess. I mean, I could think of a few. Uh, the most notable might be Margaret Marshall. She was president of the Boston Bar, right? She was. Yeah. Uh, Sandy Lynch was president sure. of the Boston Bar. She's the yeah. chief judge of the First Circuit. Mm -hmm. uh, the first female president of the Boston Bar Association was uh, Jean Dahman in mm -hmm. 1987. Mm -hmm. So that goes back a ways. Okay. Uh, yeah. I'll tell you something interesting, and maybe this is a little bit of um, talking out of school, but I'm going to do it anyway. Good. Um, I followed Paul Dacier as president, who, as mm -hmm. you know, is the general counsel of EMC. Uh, and following that, you know, there's a nominating committee process every year, and it's announced every year who is the president, who is the president-elect, and who's the vice president. And so uh, in the last cycle, it was announced that I was the president, and Lisa Arrowwood would be the vice president, uh, excuse me, president-elect, and Carol Starkey would be the vice president. And I got an email after that announcement went out from Lisa Goodhart, also a past president of the BBA, who said, wow, three women at the top. Yeah, girl and power. And until I got that email, it didn't even occur to me. Well, that's good. That's that, good yeah. that in fact, that was the case. It didn't strike me that having, you know, numerous you know, women in a row in the top leadership was something unique. And and frankly, I'm kind of glad I didn't know this. Maybe it's not such an unusual thing anymore. I, I hope that we're getting to the day where that's true. This is Chelsea Lochran of Wolf Greenfield and Sachs, and you are listening to Unbillable Boston. And welcome back to Unbillable Boston. David Yaz here alongside Sarah Worley. I got to figure out a way to have the music not stop that abruptly. Um, but you know what? Big time entertainment on a small time podcast, right? It's a work in progress. It's, a, it's well, it's a pretty good work, though. It's excellent. We, we thank you if you've downloaded us um, on iTunes or you listen to us on unbillableboston.com or at Mass Lawyers Weekly's website, masslawyersweekly.com. The folks at Lawyers Weekly are very kind to host uh, our, our website and, uh, excuse me, host our podcast and, and blast it out to folks. Um, and to everybody listening, I'll, I'll tell you a further little secret. If you go to thebostonpodcast.com, it'll also take you to Unbillable Boston because someone was very sneaky and snapping up that URL. Pretty good, right? Love it. Love yeah. it. So I'm here with Sarah, and before we get to our guest, Jeremy Silverfine, um, you know, we're, we're talking about the marathon, you know, two years after the bombing, and Sarah and I were together. What do you remember? I remember you calling me and telling me, telling me to meet you at the Boston Bear Works at 10 o'clock in the morning. That's right, per I, tradition, yeah. I thought that was a mistake because I thought I'd be asleep by 11. Mm -hmm. um, that was one of the best Red Sox games I've ever been to. That is, that's one of the sort of chilling 
ironies of the day is that game couldn't have been any better. It was a beautiful day. It was, it was you, it was me, a, yeah. Martha Bagley, right. Danny Gelb. That's right. Good old Dan Gelb. And um, I, I ate three hot dogs and had four beers, <laughs> which at the time seemed like a bad idea. And a couple of hours later, I was really glad to have had a couple of beers yeah. on board because it Well, it was, yeah, it was, I mean, so everybody has their own story. And we're going to hear Jeremy's in a moment. His office is, is right on Boylston Street. But so we, we went to the Sox. It was a walk-off win. I forget who got the hit or whatever, but it was, uh, you know, it was a great win. And you walk outside, and the and the runners are coming by. And do do you remember where you were, like the moment you found out? Yes, I was just at the top of Boylston Street, and um, a police officer, ashen-faced, put his hands up and said, "Turn around and walk away as fast as you can." Yeah. Um, and. And I asked him, I said, what happened? He said, I have no idea. There have been explosions. Walk away. So I was with Martha Bagley, a, a lawyer from Salem, and we made our way back to the Harvard Club on Com Ave. And as we walked, runners were now being stopped. And these poor people were at the end of the race. They can barely see straight. Yeah. And there was now a line of police officers, hands up at chest height, stop, don't move. And again, these runners, and I, I have never run a marathon, but I can imagine, yeah. all of a sudden they're stopped dead. The temperature's starting to drop because by now it was 3.45 in the afternoon. And there are it no was, warming blankets. There are There is no water. There's nothing. It was eerie though, right? I mean, it was just, so. To, and you thought right away something really bad has happened. Right? Yes. Yeah, like I at first, you know, when I heard there was an explosion, the first thing I thought was, oh, it's some... One of Boston's old Transformers blew, and you know, there's just a bunch of white smoke and everything. I, I was not uh, just a couple blocks from where you were. I was kind of walking up towards the finish line, uh, in part because I couldn't figure out how to get to the other side of the marathon route where my car was parked. Um, nice move, nice move by me. But uh, at any rate, yeah, it was like you could see runners stopping, and everyone's on cell phones, and some people were sort of like. Um, with their hands in their, the head in their hands saying, what the heck just happened? I saw a mom sort of uh, almost jump over a fence to, to grab her teenage son and pull him off the route. Um, so, and we have here with us, Jeremy Silverfine, who's an attorney at, is it still Brody, Hardoon, Perkins, and Keston? It is. Oh my, excellent, <laughs> memory serves me. So, um, and your office is, uh, is right on Boylston Street, but before we get there, Tell us a little bit. Sarah and I are, are buddies with with you and a bunch of your partners, and um, you do excellent legal work. Unfortunately, what you're known for is you work with a couple of bozos who like it's everything is a punchline. Everything is, and then they all have facial hair, and you don't, but they do. I'm sorry about that, Jerry. No, but. no, it's okay. I, I used to have hair, but you know it works with it works with juries. The punchline, then it right. puts them at ease. So actually. There is a method to their madness. No, but tell us about your practice and, and, and what your firm does. Um, our firm does a lot of civil litigation. We represent a lot of towns, cities in Massachusetts, and uh, we defend a lot of police officers, civil rights cases, employment cases. I do a little criminal defense work. Uh, we do some plaintiff's work. Um, keeps us busy, uh, especially the uh, police work. Right. And uh, we're, in, we're in court all the time. And you're, you're a former prosecutor. I am. I uh, was a, an assistant DA in Bristol County, and then an assistant AG in um, Boston here, and then uh, an assistant DA running the Special Prosecutions Unit for the Suffolk County DA. 
And does that help you in terms of, um, uh, well, I guess for lack of a better word, you know, business development? I mean, you must know, having worked at those different levels on the prosecutor side, you must know, know a ton of cops, right? Yes, and I think also having known and worked with a bunch of cops, you, you know the mentality and what works. And when you have to defend them, there's a, uh, a degree of credibility you come in with because they, they know you've been in, in court a lot. You ever get out of a ticket? You know, I haven't yet. I'll try. I'll keep trying, but, you know. So, so uh, I, I bet you will at some point. I mean, the odds are you will. Maybe you never get pulled over. I don't know. My best uh, ticket story was I, I was coming home from a work event. And um, uh, hand to God, I was not drunk, but I certainly had had maybe three drinks at this thing. And so I'm coming home, and it was late. And I was by my home, and I see the, I, I see the, the domes, and I'm like, oh, boy. And I'm immediately trying to remember how many drinks I had so I can maybe be honest when he, <laughs> and I don't know why he's pulling me over. And he comes up, this is my hometown of Sharon, and he says, you know, license and registration. And I say to myself, Dave, just stay calm. Above all, just stay calm. But in the back of my head, I'm remembering that from everything I know about the state of OUI law, I'm screwed. Like whether I, if he asked me to take the breathalyzer, I'm screwed, because <coughs> whether I take it or not, because there's not a good, there's not a good option there. And he looks at uh, my license, and he, and, uh, he says, uh, where are you going? And I said, home. I'm just like, a mi I'm up the road there, just a mile up. And he takes a close look at my license, and he goes, yes, what the hell? Why didn't you tell me tell me it was you? And I look, and it's Officer Anthony Lucy, who played Little League with uh, my brother Matt. <laughs> and <laughs> so he says, he gives it back to me, just, he just go home. And then I make another mistake, because uh, like an idiot, I've got the answer that I want, and I ask a follow-up question. I say, "What?" I say, "I say, what was I speeding?" And he says, "No, you were swerving all over the road." And I said, "Oh, okay. See you later." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I have a feeling I was probably checking my phone or doing something I shouldn't have been doing. So, um, <laughs> was that worth the time in, we spent? In on? any event. In any event, um, I didn't. Uh, I didn't have to call a lawyer, and I certainly wouldn't have called you, Jeremy, because you're <laughs> generally representing the other side. But. Um, so, um, actually, tell us, as long as we're, if you don't mind, for a, a moment, you know, um, uh, I know your partners, Rick Brody, Lenny Keston. I know all of them. I don't have to go down the whole roster. These are the kind of lawyers that, that send out uh, a Christmas card to their friends depicting bobblehead dolls of the four <laughs> partners in the firm. Um, so, you know, it's... Lenny Keston as Catwoman this year? I didn't see that. What was that? That was... The, the partners were depicted as superheroes. Oh, okay. And nice how Lenny they come up with a new one. was in the slinkiest Catwoman outfit oh, good Lord. one could possibly create. It made me smile, you know, right up until... I'm going to have to go back and do a disclaimer at the beginning of this podcast. If anyone's eating breakfast, um, <laughs> just be prepared. Um, so, but, 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 but give us... Some, so, in other words, these guys, um, in part, have developed a reputation of being the defender of cops, and, and word gets around, right? But tell us... It, it, um, where do your clients come from? All over, you know, um, friends, um, friends refer friends, people in the business, um, people I went to college with. Uh, I didn't grow up here, but uh, from college on. Um, Where'd you grow up? I grew up in New York yeah. and uh, ended up going to school here, undergrad and law school, and then um, became an ADA eventually. Um, but cases come in from all over. You do a nice job, someone recommends you, um, some, you know some attorneys that you work with, and soon enough you you're getting some referrals. 
No, like your partner Lenny, not to keep bringing him up, but <laughs> see, this is the problem. See, see, Lenny is the type of guy that um, he he just sort of commands uh, attention and thinks that he's the center of the universe. And all we do is perpetuate it by talking about him. But he is the type that that you'll be at a breakfast. And the speaker will say, okay, if you could, everyone could take their seats. And everyone takes their seats except Lenny, who's still sort of walking around saying hi to everybody. But so, so he, he, I don't know if he has a method to his madness in terms of, of marketing and just always kind of being, being a little bit visible and, being, and, and saying hi to people. Do you have a method when it comes to this? Or are you you're more, you're more the type that the work speaks for itself? I'm, uh, I'm always scrambling. I'm, I'm not as good as Lenny in terms of running around and, and standing up when everyone's sitting down. I just try yeah. to do good work and... Um, you know, hopefully somebody notices, but I definitely could take a lesson or two in marketing, no question. We should get Jeremy to one of our, our networking meetings, Agreed. right? Don't you think? He's a superstar. No, he should, but we don't necessarily have anyone in that space who defends uh, cops and such. And and well, what what t- give us a little bit more color on your your practice? I mean, it's so, not just defending cops, obviously. No, no, I you know I we we do all kinds of work. It could be something like defending you in an OUI. Yeah. Um, oh, you will do that. Okay, good. I, I will. Um, you know, obviously, <laughs> as long as it's not a conflict, but uh, yeah. we've we've handled a few of those. Some. Um, I started out uh, doing a lot of uh, complex white collar cases defending wise because that's the kind of work I was doing on the other side when I left the DA's office so uh, a few former colleagues had some cases I got involved in that and that was fun and uh, rewarding so it was good. So Sarah have you ever mediated a case where Jeremy has actually been there? You I should, actually have. You should have disclosed that at the top of the show I'm sorry. I think. I'm sorry. So what's he like? I mean I know he's sitting right here but please. Um, he's the smartest guy in the room. Right now, it's just you, me, and Jeremy, so that's not <laughs> I, saying much. I understand You're saying that. typically he's the smartest guy in the room. Yeah, but we also have uh, Carrie from the Boston Bar Association. I, n- I know. So um, you're right. So it was a Herculean feat to be the so smartest guy So I think the, room, the thing about Jeremy, and I, I'm going to say this like he's not in the room, although he is, and now he's going to start turning colors on me. <laughs> you know, there are people who have strong personalities in their office. We've mentioned a guy named Lenny Keston once or twice. Yeah, right. There are there's a um, there's a trend where I think young attorneys try and emulate that strong personality. It never works. You have to be your own person. You have to be true to yourself, mm-hmm. and that's one of the things that Jeremy does. He has his own manner in each of these cases, and he just maximizes his, upon his own strengths. And he's incredibly effective that way. It's not a bad reputation to have. No. Developed. No. Um, Too and my mom's not alive. She would love that. And, <laughs> oh, and well, he's the smartest nice. guy in the room. Well, we will send it to all of your family members. Um, and we might as well explain, Jeremy, that you and I belong to the secret cult of Camp Telnoar, which really runs the city when you when you think about it. I mean, there are there are you know, honest to God, it, just among lawyers alone, um, you've got Howard Cooper over at Todd and Weld, he, who I work with, who you've worked with on I certain think the camp. Oh, you worked with the camp, the, secret the most important kind of work. Were you Absolutely. co-counselors? I was the head of the waterfront, Uh huh. and Howard uh, was the head of the water skiing. And um, <clears throat> let's just say we got Howard out of a few tough jams. <laughs> <laughs> Ironic, since since, yes. n- since now he's such a upstanding uh, member of society and such a prominent lawyer. Is this um, the same camp that Rob Mazo? Oh, uh, attorney Robert Mazo of Mazo and McCullough up in, in Salem, absolutely. Uh, attorney uh, Russell Schwartz, who's an excellent divorce attorney out in Worcester. 
attorney Paul Greenberg, who's an excellent uh, defense lawyer, and I forget where he is now, but he does um, uh, insurance defense. Attorney Seth Robbins, attorney Howard Goldberg, attorney David Yaz, uh, CPA Bernie Goldberg. Are there tattoos? No, <laughs> there should be. Where it is like a secret cult. We had a really good time at the camp. We take a lot of pride in it. Anyway, so, um, but um, to downshift here, so one of the reasons we wanted to chat with you, Jeremy, is um, your, your office was impacted in some degree, and we were sort of mutually agreeing that nowhere near to the agree, to the degree that the the people that were actually down there on the route and got and got injured that day, of course. But we all have memories of it. It was it was a it was a big deal to our city. So tell us uh, about how your office experienced that. Yeah, we we were extraordinarily lucky. Um, we have the option of going in that Monday. You know, it was a holiday, and most of the years I've gone in the office or in the past would be to run or watch friends run. I decided not to. Didn't want to to, to uh, fight the crowd that day and. Um, it was also the ta our taxes would do the next day, so I realized I needed the the copy machines and whatever the faxes to get out the stuff. So I was about to head into the office, and um, uh, one of my friends said, "Just come, just come over. You know, you'll you use the machines. You'll get your stuff out. You don't have to go in." So I went over to his house, and his machine wasn't working. And I'm about to head out again to go downtown, and he goes, "Oh, we'll use my my wife's computer. We got all done." And I got into the car, and about a half an hour later. When I would have been here, all this stuff hit the fan. Um, you heard about it on the radio? I heard it about it on radio, and I got a text from my wife who was in France at some fancy dinner at some chateau she did in the wine industry, and she said the guy next to her was checking his messages and he turned white and showed her the photo, and it was our building. Oh, my God. And she was, like, freaking out, and she's trying to get a hold of me, and, you know, fortunately... Talk about a sign of the times that you can actually hear about something that happened in Boston from someone in right. Paris. Right, yeah, so, so I, uh, I I checked, and sure enough, it was our building. Uh, we had only one person that day was inside. Evan Ouellette was working at his desk, um, and, you know, he said he saw the smoke come up. It was right over, over, uh, over our building, and he just kept working. And he said he knew intuitively something was wrong, but he kept working. And then he stopped and said, what, what am I doing? Yeah. You know, th that was a bomb. And he got up and he left. And, of course, we know um, the rest. The, yeah. Our office, we, we couldn't get into the office for 11 days. And, and I have to say, for the most part, except for Sarah's story, the, um, the bar, the judges, uh, everybody was terrific. They, they all immediately understood. We, we had to file, you know, motions or uh, literally electronic email saying we you know we can't make it to court we can't get our stuff but uh, a lot of our stuff is on a server so unless you needed exhibits for trials which in some cases was true um, you know we basically got along by working from our uh, our homes we didn't see each other for 11 days but um, it was it was kind of surreal it was like you know you uh, worked in this firm but you didn't see anybody for for two weeks um, I know a bunch of the administrative staff got together uh, daily at one of the um, um, other staff's homes, and they, you know, went. They had somebody drive in every day to get the mail, come out, deliver it, and they all sat at the table and worked through it. But um, you know, as a whole, we did pretty well because I think everybody kind of had the spirit of, you know, we know what needs to get done. Um, you know, we'll, we'll, we sent out a uh, a message to everybody, to uh, friends, uh, clients, opponents judges saying look we you know we've been impacted and we're all okay but we're not going to be able to respond immediately to 
stuff did that I, you need. Did, and everyone was cool with that? Ex- except for the... Except for Sarah. Except for Sarah. So what the I, hell? Are you serious? <laughs> what did you do? I, I was fine. We had an issue with a an opposing counsel in a case who um, apparently didn't follow the news and um, did not believe uh, Rick Brody when he said that he couldn't access his office to get a document and uh, wanted proof that, in fact, they'd been impacted. But, Jeremy, my question for you is... Wait, someone really didn't know? Had no idea. But didn't know about the bombing? Like days they knew after. that they knew that the bombing had happened. Oh, they didn't. They didn't understand the proximity of uh, Jeremy's office, and so they asked that the firm produce an affidavit to attest to the fact that they'd been affected by the bombing. Oh my God! And they they made a motion <laughs> to me that I order the firm to produce an affidavit. And what I what I responded was, you know, they can produce it if they write it on a napkin. But the point is, they can't get into their office to access their computers. Right. or use the printers or do such thing. But you know, my question for you, Jeremy, was um, were you at this point essentially part of a crime scene? Because Absolutely, yeah. I mean, and that's the classic huge crime scene. You couldn't get near the office or the parking garage across the street. You know, we all know now how, how far it was and, and you couldn't get near the building and besides the structural damage, which had to be checked out as well, you couldn't get anywhere near there. So, because um, I know from being downtown that day, um, the I mean the tremendous response of law enforcement was just inspiring, and they kept moving the perimeter out because, of course, rumors are flying now through social media and other that there were more bombs, you know, in trash cans or mailboxes, and they kept pushing mm-hmm. people farther and farther out. I remember, there was something at the. The JFK Library was that it? There was there was, a, was, was, there was an there was electrical some, fire at the JFK yeah, completely Library, unrelated, and, and actually, I was standing. I remember I was standing in the um, plaza of the Christian Science Church, and um, a Twitter message went out that a bomb had exploded. They call those the, tweets. Thank you. A tweet went out that there was an explosion at the JFK Library and at um, Saint Ignatius of Loyola at Boston College. And I thought, well, that sounds unlikely, but whatever. Yeah. Um, so, and do you remember, um, what are you going to really remember from that time and that entire period, you know? Well, I guess a few things. I mean, you know, I, I think um, you alluded to this earlier in, the, in a different interview, is the impact on the city was tremendous. Um, in many ways, the tragedy for so many of the victims, um, the way it really destroyed it, or tried to destroy it. Mm. Um, a beautiful event, which for years has been a um, combination of athletics, the you know kind of a birthright of spring, the Red Sox, everybody's out, yep. they're having a good time, and this terrible event. And yet, the the spirit of the city really came out. And I and I'll say this in terms of you know a lot of the times with lawyers, you know they can be uh, ugly, grumbly. Um, I would say. You know, 99.9%, they were terrific. Do you need office space? Do you need a place to, you know, get on the computer? Do you need uh, help? What, you know, how can we help you? Uh, people made, you know, tremendous offers, and the courts were all terrific in saying, you know, you know, don't worry about it. We'll continue this hearing, mm. the trial. You don't have to worry about it. You know, this, we get it. So I, I think the, the way that the, the city rebounded was, was terrific. And even till you know, two years later now, uh, you see that spirit, which is uh, 
I think, quite a testament to, to all of us. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think it was one that, um, you know, just, just um, you hate to sort of compare them, but with 9-11 in New York and all the, the pride that swelled in, in the years to come and, and sort of the, the good that comes out of such a, a horrible, horrible event, um, you know, at the when we put together the show intro for this podcast, you hear uh david ortiz's voice and his proclamation about um you know how much the city means to us and you hear uh president obama saying that we'll run again and um you know that that um you know it the 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 three of us sitting around here were were weren't profoundly impacted i mean we weren't physically impacted of course but yet you know we we care about the city and um to uh, to see the way it's come back is just tremendous. And on the Big Poppy thing, I don't know if you guys heard this or saw this, it was one of the sort of cool footnotes to the thing is, you know, he, he dropped an F-bomb. We know this, right? This is our effing city. And did you see the response of the uh, FCC chairman? Yeah, yeah. it was yeah. wonderful. I mean, he said, um, he tweeted this out. That was the correct use of the, <laughs> the <laughs> verb, of the verb to tweet Sarah message? right wow. well a, a, a tweet that's a verb it actually is kind of tricky when you think about it but he yeah. he tweeted out uh, you know David spoke from the heart I have no problem with what he said I mean talk about a, a shrewd response from a government official who when we're used to anything but anyway so Jeremy um, uh, tell us uh, if you want more information about your firm and about your wacky partners Give us your URL. Where, where would we find information about your firm? Uh, well, you can go on our website, mm-hmm. which is uh, uh, Brody Hardoon Perkins and Kesson, otherwise known as bhpklaw.com, and look us all up. You can see the pictures. I think they even have some of the past uh, yearly cards, in which you can see uh, the Christmas cards. Christmas cards, the famous uh, the bobbleheads. The bobbleheads. Uh, and each iteration is uh, better than the next. But this, uh, yeah. you're, you're absolutely right that it's a uh, quite a crazy group of there. But they're good lawyers and uh, they do good work. Uh, you going to do anything special for Marathon Day? Do, do you guys host anything or not? Um, we usually have people up there. Um, I'm hoping to be visiting my uh, daughter in Chile actually that week. Oh my goodness! So what's, she, what's she doing over there? She is a uh, junior in college. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's in the same city as uh, Sarah's daughter in college and um, she's taking her junior year first semester she went to Costa Rica and now she's in Chile and uh, my wife and I are hoping to go down there actually that week oh excellent so well that's um, a good reason to be out of town that's fantastic I just remember having the opportunity to go abroad while I was in school in West Philly and saying no way man I'll miss too much on (laughs) campus oh my god I don't have many regrets but that's absolutely one of them could have been in Paris could have been in London no I was in the basement of my fraternity playing beer pong lord however we want to thank jeremy silverfine for being with with us today and sharing a few thoughts sarah would you like to say goodbye to the listening audience goodbye she's good at what she does kids see you next time on unbillable boston